Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Well, good morning, Hope Church. It's very good to see you. If I've never gotten the chance to meet you, my name's Trent, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and, and we are so grateful that all of you are here. If you have your Bibles, I'm gonna encourage you to open them to Mark chapter six. We'll be there in just a moment. But if you were anything like me growing up, you learned very quickly that you were one of those people that had to be taught the same lesson over and over and over again. Is anybody with me? Are, are you that kind of person? You know, as I was thinking about that this week, one of the adjectives that my mom lovingly used to refer to me and give me was, was this adjective. Let me see if any of you can relate. A little hard-headed, a little stubborn. It may be something that my wife has carried on into our relationship, and, and she's mentioned to me a few times, but hard-headed. You know, and, and when my mom would talk about her, or sometimes when my wife mentions that, that I'm hard-headed, uh, what she's meaning and what she's trying to communicate is that even though they've been trying to get me to understand something, to get this lesson, for some reason, I'm just not getting it. And sometimes my mom, I remember growing up, she would revert to as a last-ditch effort to try to make sure that I really got the lesson she was trying to communicate, she would resort to what I'll just affectionately call extreme measures, okay? Uh, And for sake of time, I will let you fill in the blank with whatever you think extreme measures are, okay? But just so you know, uh, they were extreme. Uh, Ask me about it in the lobby later. I can tell you. But you know, what's really interesting, as common as this language is, as as hard-headed, as common in culture as it is, you know what's really interesting? that not one time in the scriptures will you ever see the Bible refer to somebody as hard-headed. However, you do see over the pages of scripture, in a lot of cases, people not being referred to as hard-headed, but rather as being referred to as hard-hearted. Hard-hearted. Because the Bible knows that really what makes the difference in our life isn't necessarily what we believe up here, it's what we believe in here. And see, this story that we're gonna study from the book of Mark this morning is an example of this. Check this out. This is a verse, verse 52 in Mark chapter six, right smack dab in the center of two stories that we're gonna study today. Listen to what Mark chapter six, verse 52 says. It says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, when I read this, naturally, you know what I think? I think this must be referring to people like the Pharisees or people like tax collectors, people like sinners, people that the scriptures would would paint in such a light that, that they were far off from a relationship with Jesus. But what's really interesting about this descriptor is this is given not to Pharisees, not to tax collectors, not to sinners, but rather to Jesus's own disciples. To disciples that had listened to Jesus teach often to disciples who had seen miracle after miracle, who had seen and experienced experiences after experiences, and this descriptor is given to those people. What this shows us very, very clearly is that it's very possible to be close to truth 
and yet still miss it. In other words, it's not by mere proximity to the truth that proves you have a soft heart. It's by a receiving of truth that proves you have a soft heart. And these disciples in this story, they were described as having hard hearts, not because they weren't around the truth, but because they were still missing the truth. They were focusing on the wrong things. And before we get too judgmental on these disciples, let's just be honest. This isn't just their story, it's our story too. How many of us on a weekly basis can be around the truth of God and yet still miss it? How many of us can think we have right views and right understandings of who Jesus is only to find out later on that the Jesus that we were worshiping and adoring actually wasn't the Jesus of the scriptures, but it was the Jesus we've created in our own imagination. We're around the truth and yet we still miss it. This is the case with these disciples and the reality for all of us is when we do this, one of the dangers is when we live this way, when we end up being near the truth but not receiving the truth, we end up killing our joy and shrinking the glory of God in our hearts and in and through our lives. It's devastating for us. This is true for us and it was true for the disciples then. And what we're gonna read today is a story of Jesus going to what I'll just refer to as an extreme measure to make sure that his disciples then and his disciples now really receive the lessons that he has for us today, okay? And so I wanna read Mark chapter six, starting in verse 45. And it's two stories, and we're gonna read through the end of the chapter, and then we're gonna talk about it for just a few minutes. Mark chapter six, starting in verse 45. Here's what God's word says. Immediately he, this is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw, he sees that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Can you imagine just for a moment, picture yourself on that boat. You're fighting against this storm, and then all of a sudden, somebody comes walking across the water. Yeah, I'd be terrified too. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for here's that verse, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Go on to verse 53. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. They recognized him because Jesus had been here before, but they didn't like him. They actually kicked him out of this area. But this time they recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And I love this. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word for us this morning. I know that was a lot, so what did we just read? Well, let me give you the story in a nutshell. 
The story in a nutshell is that Jesus has sent his disciples into a boat. This is right after the feeding of thousands that we studied last week. Jesus sends his disciples into a boat where they get caught up in a storm. They're supposed to go to a region called Bethsaida, but they end up, because of the storm and because of the wind, ending up in another region called Gennesaret. And after they land in Gennesaret, after Jesus has calmed the storm, Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat and Jesus continues his healing ministry. That's essentially the story in a nutshell. But maybe you're in here today and you might be thinking to yourself, because this is what I thought, wait a minute, haven't we already studied Jesus calming a storm before? Anybody remember that? Haven't we already studied Jesus performing healings after healings after, like, haven't we studied these kinds of stories before? Why in the world is Mark writing these similar stories again? Why is he telling us this? And I wanna argue today that Mark is doing this for a very specific reason. Because the reason is Jesus is trying to teach these disciples then and these disciples now something significant that apparently we haven't gotten yet, that we haven't understood yet. See, these stories really aren't about the story. They're about the truths underneath the story. Jesus continues to bring his disciples into similar tension moments in order to teach significant truths that they would not have received any other way. And so what I wanna do for us this morning is summarize for us the main idea that I believe this passage is trying to communicate to us, and I'm gonna do it in what we call a sermon in a sentence. Here's the sermon in a sentence for today. Jesus will go to extreme measures to make sure, two things, that we see him as he truly is and we become who we are to truly be. This is the main idea that I believe God is wanting to communicate to us from this passage. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack this by looking at five truths. Five truths, so get your notebooks out, people. We're going somewhere today, all right? Caden, get your notebook out. All right, so we're going somewhere, but I wanna look at five truths that I believe Jesus longs for his disciples to know and receive. And what's gonna happen is when we receive these truths, they're gonna transform our life, okay? So here's the first truth that Jesus wants us to see. Number one, and we're starting off with a zinger. Number one, obedience to Jesus can lead you into storms. Did you see it? In verse 45, let's look at it. He, Jesus, made his disciples get into a boat. This word made in the original language, it's a word that could mean to compel, to compel or to, to push or literally, wait for it, to force out. So some theologians and some scholars, when they were studying this, this passage, they think what happened was right after Jesus had just fed the 5,000 men, what he ends up doing is maybe potentially literally grabbing his disciples and goes, come on, boys, listen, we gotta get in this boat, get in this boat. I know you're excited about all that's happening over here, but we gotta go. And Jesus literally forces out the boat with his disciples in it. He forced them out. But here's the other thing we know about this story, that Jesus, being the son of God, being God in the flesh, not only did he just send his disciples into a boat, he made them get into it, but he sent them into a boat in the midst of a sea when Jesus knew that a storm was gonna be coming. So think about this from the disciples' perspective for just a moment. From the disciples' perspective, them responding to Jesus and getting in the boat, listen, was obedience to Jesus. 
It was obedience. So think about this. These disciples, they got into the storm not because of their disobedience to Jesus, but because of their obedience to Jesus. Obedience to Jesus can lead you into storms. But now, to clarify, this is not always the case, right? Very often, probably most often, we are led into storms not because of our obedience, but because of our disobedience. I mean, good Lord, if I just shared with you all the times through my foolish choices that my choices led me into what I'll just call consequential storms that had nothing to do with God but everything to do with me and my foolishness. Let's be careful, Hope Church, not to assume that just because we're in a storm, this is God's fault. It very well could be our fault. Let's not place blame on somebody that doesn't deserve the blame. Our foolishness, our disobedience can lead us into storms, but notice That's not what's happening here. Their obedience sent them into the storm. And this storm is what Jesus' extreme measure is for these disciples. He's sending them into the storm for a purpose. For a purpose. But for some of us, if we're honest, listen, and I get this and I'm sympathetic to it, but for some of us, this messes with our understanding of how we think about God. We think God would never do this to us. We'd think maybe subconsciously God is a God of love and he would never send his children into something that was painful and difficult like a storm. God would never do that. But if you're in here today and you're thinking that way, can I just ask you a question? Have you maybe ever considered that maybe, just maybe, it's exactly because God is a God of love that he sends you into the storm? That maybe, just maybe, God loves you so much that he knows what's ultimately best for you is not to give you what you want, but to put you in a situation where you find out you're getting what you really need. Could it be, could it be that this God of love, that the storm doesn't disprove his goodness in your life, it actually proves his goodness in your life? Here's what we know about this story. They were in this storm for a long time. Verse 48 tells us that Jesus eventually comes to them about the fourth watch of the night. Theologians think that this is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now think about this. Think about how these two stories from last week and this week connect. Jesus has just given all these thousands of people dinner, some, some good fish and bread, all right? He's just given them dinner, sent the crowd away, sent the disciples into the Sea of Galilee, and these disciples were fighting this storm for hours until somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Most scholars think that they were on the sea for somewhere between 6 and 9 hours. Here's what we know about the story. This storm, it didn't come and go quickly. It was here for a minute. It lasted longer than those disciples would have liked it to last. But what were they doing while they were in the storm? Here's what they were doing. They were making headway painfully. They were rowing and rowing and rowing and not making any progress at getting towards the other side of the sea. This idea of making headway painfully, that word painfully, it's literally the Greek word for torturous. So you could literally say for these disciples, not only were they in this storm longer than they wanted to be in it, but as they rode and rode and rode, the only word that they could come up with to describe what they were feeling was torture. Hope Church, have you ever been there? Seriously. I know some of you, I know some of your stories. Some of you are there right now. You followed God into obedience. You followed the spirit of God's leading in your life and all you've been met with is resistance. Resistance and resistance and resistance. I can't help but think about parents 
God's given you children and it's your responsibility to raise them in the way and truth of Jesus and you've been trying to do that for years and years and years and yet you feel like despite all your rowing, you're not making any progress and they're no closer to Jesus than when you started. Or maybe you're in here today and you're a single and, and you feel like God's calling you into a relationship with somebody and you, you wanna obey that, you wanna follow that and you, you end up getting into a relationship but as soon as the relationship begins, it ends because you find out that that person you're with is not a person of godly character and you're wondering, wait a minute, God, I thought you were leading me into this. How come you're not fulfilling this longing you've given me? Or maybe you're somebody in, in, in your workplace, you've got a new dream or a desire or a calling and you're excited about where God's leading you and you wanna follow him and through those open doors of opportunities but every time you go to walk through that door of opportunity towards that new goal, towards that new pursuit, it's shut in your face and you're wondering, wait a minute, God, I thought, I thought you called me to this. Why, why are you shutting these doors? What's going on? I thought this is what you want. God, where are you in the midst of this? Listen, I can't help but think about missionaries Missionaries who've followed and accepted God's call to go to hard places all around the world to be obedient to the call of making disciples and, and planting churches and, and doing all of these different things and yet they're, as soon as they get there, they're, they're met with years of resistance where seemingly there's no fruit being borne by their efforts. But I can't help but think about these missionaries and think about them staying in that spot, staying in that hard place. Why do they stay? Here's why they stay. They stay because they know, they know that sometimes obedience to Jesus leads you into a storm. That just because there's resistance doesn't mean God wasn't in it. But they also believed that obedience to Jesus in a storm is so much better than, to, than disobedience to Jesus in the calm. They believed obedience was better no matter what it costs them. And so what do you do? What do you do if you're these disciples in this moment? What do you do when you follow Jesus' leadership into the storm and you've got all this resistance? Do you just bail or do you stick it out? Hope Church, listen to me. You stick it out because, number two, storms set the scene for you to see Jesus' glory in a way you never have before. Look at this. In about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, wait for it, walking on the sea. <sighs> what? What is happening here? Here's where things start to get crazy in this story. Jesus has been praying on the mountain and he sees his disciples in the storm and he decides to come down the mountain and just starts walking on water like it doesn't even face him. Like what is the deal with this? Maybe you're in here today and you would consider yourself somebody who's skeptical towards this whole Jesus thing. Listen, we just want you to know we're so glad you're here. You are, you are welcome here. But a lot of people who are skeptical of, of the scriptures and of following Jesus actually point to this story as proof for why the Bible can't be trusted and Jesus can't be followed. And here's the logic. And to be honest, I get it. The logic is no man can do that. No man can come down a mountain and walk on water in the midst of a storm. That's crazy. It's too supernatural. This must be a myth. Therefore, the Bible can't be trusted and Jesus can't be followed. And listen, I understand it. And here's the deal. When they say that no ordinary man can do this, listen, they're exactly right. 
If you're thinking that, you're exactly right. You know why? Because no ordinary man can do this. But here's the good news, friends. This is no ordinary man. This story is not about some ordinary man who has superpowers. This story is about God in the flesh named Jesus showing his power and authority over wind and waves. This is no ordinary man. This is Jesus. This is who our God is. Man, only Jesus can do this. And that's, that's literally the point. This is what Jesus is trying to do by walking on water is not just demonstrate to his disciples he has superpowers. What he's trying to demonstrate to his disciples is that they are looking at the God they've read about their whole life. Listen to this in Job chapter nine. Job, in the midst of his own storm, crazy storm, talking to his friends about God. Listen to this. I think this is so cool. God's wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. And then here it is. He alone. He alone what? Stretches out the heavens and, wait for it, treads on the waves of the sea. You could literally translate this, walks on the water. He alone, no man, he alone. Jesus is trying to prove, I'm the God you've been reading about. That's the point. But it, there's more, <laughs> because there's this next phrase there in the text that says, he meant to pass by them. Now, can we just agree, that's a weird line, right? Like, when I first started studying for this message, I read that line, and I was like, what is Jesus trying to do? Like, Alex, is Jesus trying to just go get some breakfast in Bethsaida without his disciples? Like, he just needs to, like, scoop by them, hope they don't see me. Like, what is he doing? He meant to pass by them. Here's what he's doing. When the language in the scriptures use the, the language of passing by, what it should do is it should trigger in your mind some Old Testament realities about God. Let's, I want to take you just for a minute to Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, we're going to find the meaning and understanding of what it meant for Jesus to pass by. And in this story, Moses is speaking to God. And here's what he says. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Three times in this passage, the phrase passing by is used, and here's why. Passing by, get this, this is key. Passing by is the way God spoke about revealing his glory to his people. Every time this phrase is used in scripture, it's used in Exodus 34, it's used again in 1 Kings 19, it's always referring to God revealing his glory, his character, his nature to his people. So when it says that Jesus meant to pass by them, it's not saying that he wanted to scoot past them so they couldn't see him, he actually means to pass by them so they could see him in all his glory. 
Jesus here is revealing his glory to his disciples. He's intending to give his disciples a glimpse of his glory that they had never seen before. See, Moses in Exodus 33 had seen God's back, but today, friends, in Jesus, we get to see God's face. This is what Jesus is doing. He's showing from the get-go, disciples, I'm the God you've been reading about. I'm him. I'm him. Jesus is the God of Job 9. He's the God of Exodus 33. But here's the thing, and here's how it relates to us. For these disciples, without the storm, without the storm, without the storm, they would have not been in position to see God's glory the way they did. The storm set the scene for them to see a picture of God's glory that they had never seen before. So I wanna ask you, the next time you're in a storm, here's a question that I would encourage you to ask of the Lord. When you're in the midst of the storm, instead of looking at your circumstances and all of that, look to the Lord and say, God, what aspect of your character and nature are you trying to reveal to me right now? What aspect of you do I not know about you that you're trying to reveal to me right now in this storm? Because seeing you rightly is gonna be key for me to get through this storm. See, Jesus here is trying to reveal his true glory to us in the midst of the storm. And one ultimate reason for why he's doing that is because, number three, Jesus desires to form you in the storm before he calms your storm. Notice, notice what Jesus doesn't do here. Jesus doesn't immediately calm their storm. What does Jesus do? He speaks to his disciples in the storm. He doesn't immediately calm what's going on around them. He speaks to what's going on inside of them. Jesus says to them, take heart, literally, be courageous. Why? Because I'm here. The God that has just been revealed to you, I'm here, it is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus speaks to his disciples before he calms the storm. And this is what Jesus is trying to do for us in the midst of the storm. His main concern for us is not what's going on around us, it's what's going on inside of us. Because what's going on inside of us will determine how we handle what's going on around us. Jesus desires to form us, so he calmed the storm in them before he calmed the storm around them. Why does he do that? Here's why. Because had he calmed the storm before calming them, they would have not learned to trust him in the midst of the storm. Had Jesus just calmed it and never spoke to them and never tried to form them, they would have never became the kind of people who could trust God no matter their circumstances. They couldn't be described what some people are starting to call non-anxious presences. That's what I wanna be in the midst of chaos, a non-anxious presence. Why? Because I'm okay. Why? Because my God is here despite my circumstances. See, friends, the gift is not the storm being calmed. The gift is being at calm with Jesus in the storm. 
That's the gift. That's what Jesus is trying to form in you, to be that kind of person. So many of us, myself included, we want our storms to be calmed. We want to get out of it as quick as possible. We want to be done with it, but all the while, while we're trying to wish away the storm, what we're doing is we subtly are ending up missing the point of the storm in the first place. And the point of the storm is to let the storm drive you to Jesus. That's the whole point of the storm. See, I'll say it this way. If dependence on Jesus is the goal, then your storms can be a gift, friends. And I know it's hard. I don't know what all of you are walking through. But if dependence is the goal, then your storm can be a gift. Storms, friends, are just God's invitation to us to deeper intimacy with himself. That's what storms are. See, Jesus is wanting these disciples to learn and believe that at the end of the day, he's enough. Jesus is enough for us. I love what the late pastor Tim Keller said. He said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. See, and this is where we find the gift of storms. See, storms have a liberating effect on us, don't they? Suffering and trials and difficulty, they have a freeing effect on us. And what do they free us from? They free us from what the biblical authors would call our idols. Our idols. What are idols? Idols are the things in our life, maybe seen, maybe unseen. But the things in our life that you and I are subconsciously believing that as long as I have this, then I'll be okay. As long as this is going that way, as long as my life is playing out the way I want it to play out, then I'll be okay. And see, what storms do and what suffering does is it reveals to us the things in our life that we are trusting in more than Jesus. This is the gift of storms. And see, what Jesus is trying to do in this storm for these disciples and in your storm is to teach us that what we really need to be okay is him. It's him. It's him alone. He's the point. This is why I love what Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, somebody who for his whole ministry career battled depression and anxiety and mental health issues, literally all his ministry career. This is why I love what he says and why what he says carries weight for us. Here's what he says. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. What's he saying? Storms can be a gift if we allow those storms to throw us into Jesus. Because when we get Jesus, we find he's all we need. He's all we need. We're okay. His presence is enough. As long as I need my life to go a certain way, as long as I need a certain ministry platform to lead from, as long as I need everybody to, to love me and think I'm amazing and be happy with me, as long as I need my kids to turn out a certain way, as long as I need anything, anything other than Jesus in order to be okay, I'm living with idols. I'm living with idols, and the gift of a storm is it reveals to us, if we let it, friend, you're, you're trusting in this over Jesus. And what you're trusting in, it can't deliver what Jesus can. It can't do for you what Jesus can. This is the gift of storms, and God's wanting to form us into the kind of people who live and are at peace with Jesus no matter our storm. And here's the beautiful thing as we just continue with the story. Jesus eventually, he doesn't just calm the storm in them, he calms the storm around them. 
He cares about their circumstances. And we know from the scriptures, because of the gospel, that at one point, it may not even be in this life, it may be in the next, but at one point, all of our storms will come to an end because Jesus will carry us through them for followers of Jesus. But notice again how God calms the storm. He calms it not with his words, but with his presence. Look at this, this is amazing. Verse 51, he got in the boat with them. Maybe this, this verse is for somebody. Whatever your storm is, wherever you're at, here's the picture of Jesus. He got in the boat with them. And then what happens? And the wind ceased. See, Jesus doesn't calm the storm with his words, but with his presence. And this is one of the key distinctives from this story compared to all the other stories of Jesus uh, calming storms. See, Jesus' presence, his presence is what calmed the storm. And this is where we're learning a very key important detail about the scriptures and how the scriptures teach to us about who we have in Jesus. See, Jesus, he doesn't just give you courage, he is your courage. Jesus doesn't just give you peace, he is your peace. He doesn't just give you rest, he is your rest. And the greatest gift, Hope Church, and I just need you to hear this, the greatest gift that God has ever, ever given you is himself. Himself. And that's what we see in this story. This story is a picture of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Think about how beautiful this is. God, at the beginning of all creation, had created this world, and it was good, and it was perfect. And he, he was up in heaven, and he saw his people. He was on the mountain of heaven, and he saw his people in their sin, in their mess, raging against the, a storm called sin, not able to do anything about it in order to get to the other side, to get to safety. And he sees his people down in the sea, in their mess, and he looks at them, and he goes, you know what? I've got a solution. And Jesus goes to what we'll refer to as an extreme measure. Jesus, the God of the universe, comes down the mountain of heaven. He sees his disciples, he lives the life that you and I should have lived, dies the death that you and I deserve to die, is raised again three days later to prove once and for all that this storm called sin has nothing on him and what he's done is offered by getting in the boat to anybody who would accept him by faith a safe passageway into eternity. This is the story of the gospel. This is Jesus. Now we gotta move on, and I'm about to skip a whole bunch of stuff, Lance. But we gotta see Jesus rightly. Because these disciples, they were still missing it. They were still missing it. Look at it in verse 52. This is what we've already read before. Verse 52, nope. There it is. <laughs> For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is where we began. See, these disciples, what is it? What is it about their hearts being hardened, Jesus walking on waves, have to do with Jesus feeding the 5,000s with, with loaves and fish? What does that have to do with one another? And here's how I'll describe it. Number four, Jesus is trying to help us and the disciples understand, number four, that we are to worship the miracle worker and not the miracle. See, the disciples, because their heart was hardened, they had missed the point. 
They had missed the point. See, in the feeding of the 5,000, these disciples were, were losing their minds over the multiplication of feeding physical people, of, of multiplying bread. But I love what Pastor Scott taught us last week, that it's ultimately not about this physical bread. It's about spiritual bread that we have in Jesus. I love how John Piper talks about this, and he connects these two stories. Here's what he says. He says, so whether the story is about being rescued from hunger by making bread or being rescued from wind by walking on water, the point is, I don't just give bread. I am bread, Jesus said. I don't just make the wind stop. I get into the boat. See, if you've missed it, here's the point. What Jesus is desiring to teach us is that ultimately everything he's been doing in this story and in the stories we've read so far in the Gospel of Mark, it's all about him. He's the hero of every story. He's the meaning behind every sentence. He is the goal. That's the point. Mark this down, follower of Jesus. Every time Jesus performs a miracle, he's ultimately doing it to demonstrate his deity. It's always about him. Anytime you read in the Old Testament, when God will pull back the curtain of his glory and reveal to people why he's doing what he's doing, most of the time, the motivation from God's own heart is simply this. He says, I'm doing what I'm doing. Why? So that you may know that I'm the Lord. That I'm the Lord. That I am who I said I am. That I'm trustworthy. That I'm faithful. See, and here's what's so key. If we see Jesus rightly, if we, if we worship the miracle worker and not the miracle, what ends up happening is we see him rightly, it transforms our worship of God, which then in turn leads to our transformation of our souls. Listen to this, I love this, this is so key. This is the Apostle Paul teaching us the connection between worship and our own transformation, seeing God rightly and us being transformed. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding, that word beholding, it's literally the word for contemplation, to contemplate or, or to see rightly or to think over and contemplate and meditate on. So when we all, when we behold what? The glory of the Lord. Everything we've been talking about so, so far. When we behold the glory of the Lord, what happens? We are being transformed. We are being formed, changed, transformed into what? into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The same image is language from Romans. Paul is building on his argument. The same image of what, you might ask? Here's the same image. It's the same image of Jesus. God is using everything in your life, everything in your life to form you into a person who lives and loves like Jesus. And that everything includes your storms. And if we will see him rightly, if we will behold his glory, if we behold him, the promise of the scriptures is we become like him. And friends, that should be our goal. Not to just get out of our storms, but to become like Jesus as we are with Jesus. How does that happen? Very practically, friends, very practically. How do we become like Jesus? Well, we behold him, but where do we behold him? We behold him as we abide with him. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 15, verse five. This is a key verse for us here at Hope. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, remains in, remains connected to me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much 
fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is the character of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Yes, I learned a song to memorize that back in grade school. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice, notice, this will be life-changing for some of you. The invitation from Jesus is not to bear fruit. The invitation from Jesus is not to force yourself to be like Jesus. The invitation from Jesus starts with, be with Jesus. Be with me, walk with me, spend time with me with an open Bible and an open heart, coming before God saying, God, I wanna be with you. My life is chaos, but I'm fine because I'm with you. God, would you help me encounter you today? Abide in Jesus. Here's what I love. All these disciples, they learn this lesson. They see it. They've been met with the mercy and power and presence of God, but the last thing we're gonna see here is this mercy, power, and presence wasn't just for the disciples. It was for everyone. I love this. Here's the last thing I want you to see. Number five, Jesus' power and presence is for anyone who will come to him. Anyone who will come to him. Look at it in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people, sick people, on their beds to wherever they heard he was. I love this. And wherever he, Jesus, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Notice the power of God there. And I love this. As many as, as many as touched it were made well. Here's the point, friends. Jesus' power Jesus' presence, Jesus' grace, Jesus' healing power, it's not just for us, his disciples. It's for everyone. It's for anyone who would come to him. I love how the passage, it says, whether they were in cities or the countryside. The point of the passage is it doesn't matter if you were raised in the city and you were wealthy or you were raised in the countryside and you were poor. It didn't matter if you were good or bad, rich or poor. It didn't matter if you were well or sick, as many as, what's the distinguishing mark? What's the thing that determines whether or not you have access to the presence and power and mercy and grace of God? Here's the the condition. They came to Jesus. They came to Jesus. It's for everyone. So here's my question. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your story is. But maybe you're in here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus where you've surrendered the control of your life to him. Here's the question. All of this could be yours if you come to him. See, the gospel is that Jesus came to us. He's done everything necessary. All we've gotta do is receive it by faith. Receive it by faith. So if you're in here today and you want your life transformed by the grace and mercy and power and presence of Jesus in a relationship with him, the invitation is open. Just come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. We're gonna have pastors down here in just a moment, and we would love, we would love, be honored to share with you, if that's you, what it means to really follow Jesus and and lead you into a relationship with Jesus. We'd be honored to do that. But maybe you're in here today and you're a follower of Jesus, and you recognize that maybe you've been living with idols. You've been trusting in other things more than you've been trusting and following Jesus, and, and hear the invitation from Jesus. He's in the boat with you. He's in the boat with you to show you that no matter what is going on in your life, He's enough. 
he's enough. And here's an opportunity for you to repent and confess that you've been trusting in other things more than him and he's, he's in the boat with you. Receive him. Maybe you're here today and, and, and the obvious implication here is, is your life is a mess. You're in a storm. Our pastors here and our church family, honestly, would be honored to pray with you and, and, and minister with you in the midst of your storm. We love you. And we don't want you walking through any of this alone. So however the Lord leads you to respond, let's respond in that way. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. God, thank you that you're with us in the midst of a storm. No matter what the storm is. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. God, I pray that your presence would be so tangible to them right now. God, if brothers and sisters are walking through storms right now, God, I pray that, that you would remind them you're in the boat with them and that you're enough. God, would you lead us to respond in whatever way you want? We love you and we trust you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we respond.